Last week we finished Isaiah 51, and I'm going to back up to 51:21 because it's a single thought leading into 52. So Isaiah 51:21. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Adonai, Jehovah, your Elohim, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So obviously we're talking about the end of exile. And of course God sent Israel into exile because of their misbehavior, unfaithfulness and idolatry and all sorts of stuff. And the beginning of 52, I am seeing that as a continuation of 51, 20 through 23. 51, 21 through 23 is the end of the punishment of Israel. And then chapter 52 starts then with the restoration of Zion at the end of that process. The wording there should remind you of Revelation where it says, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. If you go to Revelation 21, talking about the new heaven and the new earth with the Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So I'll pick it up in Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamp. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the idea here back in Isaiah 52 is, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. I am correlating Isaiah 52, the restoration of Zion, with the new Jerusalem. That may or may not be true. Back in Revelation again, if you scroll down to 22.14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So in Isaiah chapter 52, the first two verses remind me of the description of the new Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth. So from that, I am inferring that the restoration of Zion, the restoration of Israel, etc., are not complete even today. So these are events that are yet future from our time. And as I have said before, the exile of Judah and Jerusalem is 120 some odd years future from when Isaiah is writing. 
And what he's writing about here is yet future to us. The beautiful garments of Zion would probably be the return of its people. But the language here in Isaiah is echoed, at least from my perspective, in Revelation. And in Revelation, it is clearly talking about the city that comes down from heaven that's something like 22,000 stadia on a side, which is 1,300 miles on a side. That is huge and obviously would cover all of present-day Israel without even breathing hard. And while we're there, outside, which is those who are not permitted to enter, because in Isaiah 52, it says, There shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. And then in 22.14, it lists categories of people who are outside, which are not permitted to enter. And dogs in this particular tradition are male prostitutes, sorcerers, which doesn't need elaboration, and the sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and anyone who loves and practices falsehood. 52, verse 3, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, the commentary that I read says that this is two different things. They went down to Egypt, and then the Assyrian oppressed them, because we remember we've been talking about the Assyrian invasion in the first part of the book. The way it is laid out in English in my translation, which I'm not putting a lot of faith in, is it sounds like the Assyrian oppressed them in Egypt. Let me read it again. My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, one of the things that did happen during the Assyrian invasion is some Israelites did flee to Egypt, and the Assyrians did put Egypt under tribute and so forth, so this may be talking about those who fled in front of the Assyrian invasion. But the thing that it leads you to think about is the events before the Exodus in Genesis when they all went down to Egypt. And at that point, the Assyrians were not an oppressor. So I say the sentence is a bit difficult. The King Jimmy puts a semicolon there. My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, semicolon. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Two different instances in that case. Verse 5. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people were taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. Again, this isn't clear, or at least it isn't to me. And what's going to happen in a minute is... God is going to take his people back from the places where they have been scattered. And of course, you all know, having read the Exodus, that when God takes his people out of Egypt, he doesn't pay for them. The idea is, if I had sold them to someone, then that entity, whoever it was, would be right to demand that I pay them back when I get my people back. If I'm redeeming slaves that I have sold, then it is the right of the slaveholder to be compensated when I get them back. 
And so this is all by way of saying they weren't sold for anything. And what's going to happen in a little bit here as we go on down is when God starts taking them back, he is not going to offer any compensation for them. And if you remember in the Exodus, the big deal with Pharaoh is, wait a minute, we're not going to turn these valuable slaves loose. So the idea that the Egyptians wanted to hang on to them for economic reasons, and of course God never offered Egypt any compensation for taking their slaves. So all of that that I just read should remind you of that dynamic. So if you go back to the beginning of Isaiah 50, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And of course, that's a rhetorical question because God doesn't have any creditors. And so when we get down to Isaiah 52, and God gets ready to redeem his people, the whole point of all of this is he sent them away, he will get them back, and he owes nothing to the lands where they have been enslaved during the time that they were in exile. It seems remarkable in light of this that when the Israelites left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them wealth to take with them. The Rabbinic commentaries that I have read on that indicate that God was extracting wages for forced labor because they were never sold into slavery. God didn't sell them into slavery. They went down there as sojourners during the famine and went down there as economic refugees. When they got down there, they hung around a long time and Egypt then finally enslaved them. So the rabbinic understanding of the wealth that they were given by the Egyptians when they left is God says, you have been working my people without compensation all this time. We're going to make sure you compensate them. So back now to Isaiah 52, and I'm in the paragraph that begins in verse 3 and goes through verse 6. So verse 5, now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people were taken away for nothing. I didn't sell them. They weren't purchased. They were simply sent into exile. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. I don't know who their rulers are. I don't know whether it is the nations to which they were sent or whether it is the rulers of Israel who are just really grumpy at having been sent into exile. Let me finish the paragraph. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Who knows his name? His people. Future. So therefore, my people shall know my name. I am suggesting that one of the possible readings of this is as they are in exile, they have become essentially secular Jews and are not regarding the name of the Lord with any reverence. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I can't go into the Hebrew. But the question is their rulers. And the antecedent to that, my people were taken away for nothing. The rulers of my people is what I'm suggesting in English makes sense. And, and as I say, the commentary that I read has your interpretation, which is to say the rulers of the nations where I sent these people are taking my name in vain. I understand the two points of view, and I have no real good reason to come down on either side. 
so then in verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. And the way that reads to me is they have lost track of him. So now we go into a poetic section, and this is preceded by what I just said, that therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And I'm suggesting that that is by way of telling God's people who he is. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Whose watchmen? Zion's watchmen, I would say. So you have somebody whose feet are bringing good news. The watchmen see him coming. And the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. And you remember in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was taken up in the spirit and taken to the temple, and he saw the glory of the Lord depart, Ichabod, Ichabod is the Anglican version of it, which means the glory is gone. And in the second temple that was constructed after the Babylonian exile, the glory of God never inhabited it as it had before. So what we're seeing here, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion, which I'm going to suggest is the glory of the Lord returning to Zion. Verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. One of the things that you should remember from Deuteronomy and so forth is that the reason Israel exists and the reason that they are under God's hand is so that the nations will see Israel as an example of what God does and who he is. And the original intent was that the Lord himself was to be a presence in Israel, in the temple, and that presence and the blessing that it brought was to be a witness to the nations of the goodness of God. And so when the Lord returns his presence to Zion, that plan will kick off again where Israel will be in right relation to God and God's presence will be among them and all of the nations will then see that the nation in whom God delights prospers. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, Dallas Theological Seminary, they say that this go out from there is the people of Israel coming out of the nations. I do not see it that way. It does not read that way to me. At least in my English translation, 
the way it reads is Zion has been restored. The presence of the Lord is once again in his holy temple. And now going out is going out to the nations to spread the word of God. And as they do go out, notice, go out, purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. They're not bringing the vessels of the Lord back. They are carrying the vessels of the Lord out. And then the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. One of the things he says is when you come up to the feasts of ascent, I will look over your land, and nobody will covet your homes, your land, or anything else. They will be safe. So you will be able to come up to the feasts of the Lord and celebrate in my presence without worrying that some random Midianite is going to come through and loot the place. So... The idea then of going out from Zion and the Lord God of Israel will be your rear guard says to me, I want you to go take the gospel out to the world, go and don't worry about random Midianites or Ishmaelites or anybody else coming in and looting the place because God himself will be your rear guard. That's what it says to me. And I admittedly am reading it in English translation. And there is an entire possibility that I am completely wrong and Dallas Theological Seminary is completely right, but I like mine better. And not only that, at least my translation supports what I'm saying. So we're all the way down to verse 13 in Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. To me, that's Yeshua. Again, the rabbis don't buy it, but it shrieks of Yeshua to me, especially of the physical abuse he took before the crucifixion. So we're all the way down now to Isaiah 53. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, we just talked about the arm of the Lord up above. Back in 52.10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And that is, I see, God bearing his arm and pulling his people out of the places where they were in exile. And then once they are back from exile, the Lord has bared his holy arm, which gets them back, and then... In 11, I'm seeing depart, depart is going out as missionaries. So here in 53, who has believed what they heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, who was it revealed to before? The nations. So to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. Now, I am taking that to be metaphorical. Because what is the dry ground? Israel in exile. So the idea there is that when the Messiah comes, Israel has no power, which is true. He doesn't. So a root out of dry ground is not a cultivated field. For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
I read a Jewish commentary on this passage, and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy Jesus was really popular. What do you mean despised? And I take that as he was despised to the point he was crucified and was delivered up by the religious authorities, but the execution and all of that was handled by the Romans. I see it as Yeshua. I'm not trying to cast doubt on that. I was just simply reading to see how they don't. So verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And that's totally in line with Christian theology. Yeshua himself says, nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down. So the idea that they would have been able to do what they did had he not cooperated is, according to our theology, nonsense. And I agree with that, by the way. I'm not saying that as if I have any doubts about it. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christian Theology 101 So the idea there that you have the iniquity of someone laid on someone else is what's in play here. Now, if you come over to Hebrews 9.15, Therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the idea that you have a new covenant And every covenant is required to be ratified in blood. It's called cutting a covenant because there is a covenant victim that must be slain, the blood of which serves to ratify the covenant between the parties. So the idea here, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the first covenant being the Mosaic covenant was transgressed. In order to replace that covenant, there is a new covenant, one of the clauses of which, you might say, is the parties to this new covenant are redeemed from transgressions committed under the first one. Verse 16 now in Hebrews 9. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. This is a bad translation. For where a covenant or a testament is involved, the death of the victim must be established. Most of your Sunday commentators will say, oh, Yeshua made a will. And then because Yeshua died, that means his will can be opened and the terms of his will then come in effect because the will is not in effect until the man who made the will dies. That's the way that is normally translated. It's not correct. What we're talking about here is the testament of the covenant doesn't come into effect until the death of a covenant victim. So coming back now to Isaiah, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That takes you to that Hebrews passage and that the new covenant redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what's happening in Hebrews 9 is it's explaining, if you will, Isaiah 53, 6, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before his shearers are silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And again, I see Yeshua there in the crucifixion. I, I don't have any question about that, but the Jews don't see it. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, offspring I'm not sure about. If, like me, you are firmly Trinitarian, then offspring of God are also offspring of Yeshua. And one of the things that the death of Yeshua does is it gives us, Gentiles, the ability to be sons of God because we are brothers to Messiah. But I'm referring back to Hebrews, because Hebrews says that Yeshua is a child of Adam. We are children of Adam. Therefore, we and Yeshua are brothers in a sense. Yeshua is the son of God. So if then you join with Yeshua as his brother, you then become a son of God. Isaiah 53.10 now, again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." So what I'm suggesting is that the offspring here, Yeshua was not married, had no physical children. Now, when he comes back to rule and reign, what happens then is beyond my pay grade. But at least as of his crucifixion, he had no children. So one of the ways I can see that, since I am firmly Trinitarian, is the brothers of Yeshua who are brought into the kingdom become children of God, hence they are his offspring. Do with that whatever you like. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So I see that as his atoning sacrifice, acceptance of the sacrifice by being raised from the dead, and then when he is divided in the spoil, I see that as his return in triumph at the second coming. Oh, 